Guatney Unplugged is brought to you by the good folks at Guatney Chevrolet and Guatney Buick GMC and hosted by the mayor of Rose City, Scott Romine. Hey, Scott Romine here. We're talking today with stuntman Scott Leva. He is known for Spider-Man and High Falls and Star Trek, all this kind of stuff I'm fascinated with. How are you, Scott? I'm good, thanks. Man, where did you grow up at? It's an interesting question. My father was in the military, so I literally grew up everywhere. Um, I need to get to Alaska because out of the 50 states, it is literally the only state I've never been to. <laughs> you got to do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so growing up, what were the movies and TV shows you were like fascinated with? I was Dukes of Hazard and A-Team, but you had to have something a little before that. Oh, God, yeah. Um, I, mean, I was into uh, Man from Uncle batman the wild wild west was my go-to show my older sibling loved star trek and i thought this is stupid which is interesting <laughs> since star trek ended being such a large part of my life down the road um so i wasn't a real fan of star trek originally um though i am now i wouldn't consider myself a trekkie but wild wild west was just i mean that stunt team of people i know and work with Quite frankly, we'll get some of Jackie Chan's team uh, run for their money. Uh, they were taking some hard hits. So I just thought that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. It must be surreal to grow up and work with people that had made things you knew about. You know, it is kind of interesting that as as you get into the industry and you're actually a bit of a fanboy too. Like, I love this and suddenly I'm working with Clint Eastwood, and it's like, oh my God, it's you know, Dirty Harry, it's the man with no name, you know, and you know, you're working literally side by side with this icon, mm -hmm. um, Francis Ford Coppola. You look at him, and all you can think of the Godfather, well, of course. And I'm working on Cotton Club with the guy that basically brought us the Godfather, um, you know, meeting people, working with people, and and there's a bit of you that's like this. Um, jumping ahead, I'll tell you, I worked on Flags of Our Fathers, the stunt coordinator who'd been working with Clint for his entire career, as far, as far as I know, Buddy Van Horn. Buddy passed away a couple of years ago. Um, considered a stunt legend, incredible. Brings me in to work on Flags of Our Fathers as the assistant stunt coordinator, which meant on while Buddy was on first unit, I'd be covering second unit. While Buddy was on second unit, and you know the difference between first and second unit. Oh, right? yes, of course. Yeah. First unit is okay. the actors, and the second unit is out getting the stunts and the action. And oh, yeah. Yeah. Even picking up a little pin or is that, sure. just a close up of glass. It's all second unit. Anyways, I would be covering first unit. I'm like, yeah. And the first day on first unit, I had to wire off these stunt guys that were supposed to be floating in the water near these landing vehicles that were these huge tank like vehicles via World War II. And my job was to keep the stunt guys from being washed underneath. And, you know, I rig, and so I was good at it. And I hear this voice, hey, Scott. I look up, and there he is, Clint Eastwood, who's oh. called the boss. And he goes, yeah, Scott, yeah, you got this all. I go, yeah. Only thing I could think of was, he knows my name. That's <laughs> so the greatest. <laughs> I mean, just to have Clint Eastwood say your name to you is a big deal. It was, and it was cool. I mean, we, we out of the movies, I worked on three movies, and he was a pleasure. I gave up some other bigger movies to work on another Eastwood film with Buddy. Um, 
Letters from Iwo Jima was amazing. Uh, the changing, there was a whole rooftop shake sequence which got cut except for my one line and us running up the stairs. But it was just, uh, it was a pleasure. And I learned a lot as a director from watching him because anytime I worked with a director such as a Steven Spielberg or even a Francis Ford Coppola, everyone's got their own style. And it's, um, I would always kind of sit back and take notice and say, oh, that's an interesting approach. So, yeah. Yeah, I've always heard he doesn't say, like, action. He'll just say whenever you're ready and the camera's rolling. No, and... it's go yeah. and stop. <laughs> For... Action. And, it's, and, and rehearsal, I, I didn't have a single rehearsal on anything we did. I can't say he doesn't rehearse, but he moves quick. He moves efficiently. He knows what he wants. Like and um, one again, take. it was a joy to work on those films. What's that? Like one take of a shot and he's good? In most cases, we had this huge battle sequence where we've got the Marines, which mostly are extras. I think we've got like eight or 12 stunt guys that have to fill in spots and be blown off the burn, which is the top of the hill as they climb up on the sands of Iwo Jima, and they're taken under Japanese gunfire. And they've got this huge jib arm that goes all the way up and above all the way to the end of the uh, burn where the shot is and they run it a couple of times mm -hmm. now my years of experience in the business this is going to be the whole day on this one shot and they do a couple of run bys uh, clint gives the order you know when, you know when i say go uh, i'm going to say go go when this when the stunt guys fly through the air and i got it we rehearsed it everything went fine so we hear go and the action starts the two stunt guys i set up fly off the burn on my air rams and then uh it goes to the end and then i hear stop i'm waiting to hear back to one okay moving on that's what? it one <laughs> so, shot deal yeah, that was it I'd it, always, was, it was incredible i'd always heard if you made it onto his crew you were like family and and like you said you were on three that he works with the same people all the time yeah, I mean, and, and some of the people that he worked with have been in the business forever, including Buddy and and, and uh, the set designer and wardrobe. And, I mean, people have changed, and it's different. I mean, he's got different people. I know, I know he's working on another one right now, um, juror number two or something. 93 years but, old. He's uh, making a movie. <laughs> no, it's incredible. He's, and, he's and awesome. He's just He's incredible. But there's a lot of people I worked with in the industry that you look at and go, wow, and they're just – people you grew up with and just respected and just suddenly I'm working with them. So what inspired you to think about stunts? Interesting story. Um, as a kid, of course, I'd watch TV and this one movie came on TV at the time. It used to be when it was at the theaters a year later, it would end up on network and I'm watching the great escape. And oh, I yes. think this is an incredible movie. Mm -hmm. And there's Steve McQueen on this motorcycle running away and, jumping over these uh, barbed wire fences of course i didn't know there was such a thing as uh stunt guys at the time <laughs> that his double was doing that but at the time i said i want to do that i want to be an actor thinking that's what actors did uh so the the uh great escape literally is the movie that got me going this is what i want to do as far back as i remember and i'd always stuck with that dream well that's a that's a good one because i mean that's an action packed deal. I would think for a lot of stunt people, probably a Smokey and the Bandit or 
something like that probably got them into the into that world. Hooper gets a lot of the, when the Hooper aired, a whole bunch of people will show up in California wanting to be stuntmen as soon as Hooper. It's like, oh my God, this is what I want. Um, Hooper wasn't one of the ones that influenced me. It was a lot of the early stuff. And I mean, I'm a fan of Davy Sharp. If you don't know Davy Sharp, Google Davy Sharp. He doubled Tom Tyler on on uh, short stunt guy, but you wouldn't know it. Doubled him on Captain Marvel serials. And this guy was just incredible. You know, Yakima Canut, everybody knows Yak. Oh, that's right. Went under uh, the uh, horses and the horse-drawn carriage, right? I mean, didn't he do that stunt originally? He did on, on Stagecoach. He went underneath and, and wrote underneath Stagecoach. And he was just, uh, he wrote the book on stunts. Um, Carrie uh, Lofton, incredible car stunt guy. I mean, these are, these are the people that uh, most people nowadays don't know who they were. But it's, yeah, there's an incredible history behind it. And a lot of where we are with stunts today began with them you know, slamming up and breaking bones and going, this doesn't work. And then you figure out how it does. And in the end, it sort of gives us that opportunity that we're not being busted up because they kind of went there before us. It's got to be way safer today than it was 30 years ago. Yeah, we still have incidents and accidents. Things happen. Um, you know, um, a lot of the stuff I built was safety conscious to be sure that, you know, air, new airbags, designing a new airbag to catch you if you're off center was because we had too many injuries and deaths from people hitting an airbag on the side or way off center. So I rebuilt the airbag. I want to ask you about, because I watched this guy so much as a kid, you knew Dar Robinson. Dar was my hero. He was my idol. Um, I learned so much from Dar. He's the one that put me in, scent, in touch with safety and how to do safety and be safe and smart and put physics behind certain things. So yeah, huge icon, huge fan. But I mean, you got pretty close to the, I remember the guy in the, in the eighties, if there was like a little stunt, like documentary on PBS or something, he would be in it jumping oh, out yeah. of some building yeah, would, or something. I mean, <laughs> yeah. and that's, I'm 10 years old. Like, Oh my gosh, this guy is unbelievable. But you knew yeah, him. You no, stayed he, at his house some or trained with him? and and No, I went to his house in North Hollywood. He had this huge uh, trampoline with the net that you could play. Uh, I guess uh, it was volleyball on the trampoline, and I would jump on the trampoline, and I'd hang out with him and his wife, Linda, because uh, he didn't live far from me when he was in uh, North Hollywood. So, yeah, I, I used to hang out with Dar. That's so cool. Now, how do you – I am terrified of heights, how do you work up to that? Or do you just not have a fear of that? Do you start small? How do you get to the well, point you that you're you always start doing? small. Yeah. You start small. You, you, you do little jumps off curbs and you learn to foot jump and so forth. I mean, anyone that tells you when they do a high fall or anything that can be life altering or ending that, you know, they're not afraid. They're full of it. I mean, anytime <laughs> I'm up there, I'm looking down and I realize this could be the last time and you work out all the mechanics and figure out what can go right and what can go wrong. And, you know, sometimes hopefully um, you can fix it. Sometimes in mid stunt, I was coming in a little deep on a high fall and I was able to ball up on impact and it was just an instinct. So, um, but there's a healthy fear and the fear is what keeps you sane and what keeps you alive. What are some of the highest falls you've done? Are there there shots in films we would know? I'm sure there are. Film got canceled before we finished. There was a film. Um, I don't remember the name. I did a 211 foot high fall 
and I really shouldn't have been doing it then. I, Dar Robinson worked with me, and we were using his airbag, and this was a long time ago. But uh, the, the stunt went off great. I was fine. You can feel yourself accelerated here. There's no, I mean, it's, it's incredible because you start to pick up speed, and the first time I did that, I literally felt myself accelerated. Whoa! But many, many, many years ago. So... Scott, I know that didn't that start off with cardboard boxes before there was an airbag? They would use mattresses. If people get a chance, Google science of the red carpet precision stunts. Uh, when I won the Academy Award, they did a documentary on the SciTech Awards. And there's a whole piece on me and my airbags. And the guy talks about stunts where they'd use mattresses and boxes and you know, as I slowly progressed, we started getting into the air cushions, the airbags. And then you reinvent the thing. Do you just look at what everybody's using and just tear one apart and think there's another way? Well, best friend died doing a high fall and it became personal. And I started looking at airbags and taking them apart and figuring out what was wrong at the airflow system and how the airbag would ball up if uh, you hit it too many times, that if you didn't center punch it, it could tend to topple over or bounce you off. And I started doing research on how to change the overall aspects and physics behind airbags. And there's about 39 people alive today that hit my bag wrong that otherwise wouldn't be here anymore. So, yeah, oh, <laughs> it worked. Wow. Were the first airbags even reusable? Was it ever a temporary one-shot thing? Well, the thing with the bag would be either sometimes people would hold it and on impact they'd let go and the air would pop out. Then they went to Velcro. The problem with Velcro is that it would sometimes open before impact because the air was pushing through and suddenly the air, uh, the Velcro would separate. So there was a, a large, a, a slight progression on how bags were. I ended up using a bungee system so that when the opening air release baffle opens, the bungee would, would stretch and then it would pull in on itself and reclose after impact and then the person rolled off. One of my favorite high fall airbag deals is as a kid, I, my whole life, I wondered how they did the shot in Lethal Weapon. Remember where the girl's high and she jumps off the building and she's falling towards that car? And then, of course, she hits the car famously and that's the opening of Lethal Weapon. I didn't know until a couple of years ago they airbrushed the car onto the airbag and that's yes. how they got the shot of her fall. I never figured that out as a kid. Yeah. <laughs> that is yeah. genius. You know, yeah, no, it, 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 it's, yeah, it's uh, most now usually it's a two shot you'll do, or you're on cables. I did a high fall 150 feet on cables backwards onto the roof of a car cable strapped above me and they followed me all the way to the car. So that's changed a bit to where CGI wasn't a necessity except to basically take away the wires in the shot. But the actual stunt, me going from point one all the way down to the roof of a car. Um, yeah, we can do that a little more. You have you know, a credit things. going back to the late 70s. I've got to ask you about, I think to this day, probably the best superhero movie is Superman 78. And, and you worked on that film. Interesting enough, I started out as an extra. I was in New York. Um, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I can't tell you too much about it. Um, I wrote a book, 
and the book is has a publisher it's going to be in bookstores um there's kind of until we're closer to publication i'm not going to give a lot of information so some of these stories are in there the superman one Uh. when i went to new york i signed up with an extra agency and i got to be an extra and i got to be friends with a stunt coordinator from new york a guy by the name of alex stevens and alex took a liking to me and started having me work with him and the stunt people and so i actually ended up working as a stunt man including on the sequence where Lois tries to prove that Clark is Superman and jumps That's out right. of a window. Yeah. He uses his heat vision with a fruit stand. Ta- uh, That's right. Yeah. So that, which never made the original cut. Um, I worked on that as stunt safety and a couple of other things. Um, so that was kind of a fun film. And when I first saw Chris Reeve walk out in uh, the Superman suit, it was like, that was, uh, that was Superman. There was no you know, the guy walks out and I'm thinking of Kurt Swan, Murphy Anderson. I'm thinking of all these original Superman artists from my time. And he was Superman and it was just incredible to see him. Did you interact with him at all? I mean, he is a huge hero of mine. I mean, he was, the I talked to one. him. He was very friendly. He was very easygoing, very friendly, very nice. I didn't interact a lot with him. I, uh, there was a separate flying team. Um, so we didn't deal much with the flying, but I watched them uh, rig him up and, oh. and so, but uh, yeah, he was, he was friendly. And, and Scott, you eventually had the Superman suit on, correct? I mean, Lois and Clark, Lois one and of Clark. Those? yeah, yeah. Lois and Clark, the new adventures of Superman. I got to wear the suit and Dean, I uh, was, uh, got to do a double Dean Kane a couple of times and it was cool. Did you keep anything cool. cool from these shows? I mean, you've worn all these. No, awesome- I mean. No, I, yeah, they are, usually give out swag, like uh, basically uh, you're given, uh, you know, like uh, hats hat or, or t-shirts, jackets, or jackets or, yeah, yeah, but uh, never, never kept a prop, though. you can't, you can't take from them unless they give you, so. Ah, I gotcha. Well, you know what the yeah. value of a lot of that stuff is these days? I mean, if Chris Reed Tell me about it. Is, yeah. gosh, $200,000 probably or something, who knows? I have no idea, but yeah, it's up there. (laughs) Just to have been on the set. That is a priceless memory. Yeah, no, it was incredible. New York City at the time. I got to meet and know um, Donner. Donner. Why am I forgetting? Because I worked closely with his wife, Lauren Schuller Donner. Yeah, yeah. When I saw him again down the road, he remembered me. Um, So um, That's so great. And then when we were working on X-Men, his wife was uh, one of the producers, and there was little bit of politics going on and some problem with the studio and so she brought dick in to kind of sit on set and kind of be a a mediator so to speak to yeah he would just sit there while they were shooting but uh, he knows about problems with the studio <laughs> i mean that's the you guy yeah i mean that's the guy you think. i gotta ask you about i am a huge spider-man fan and you wore a real spider-man suit and i guess you were spider-man for a while in the mid 80s how did that come to be um i was always a spider-man fan first comic book i ever read was spider-man number 39 where um i was a young kid went into the drugstore where the racks are have all the comics in them and they spin around and they just jumped out at me and i became a fan i related to him and as I grew up going through school, uh, he was kind of always my go-to when things weren't going well. And I thought, well, gee, I wonder what, you know, Peter Parker, Spider-Man. That's right. Um, 
friend of mine owned a comic shop in uh, Gaithersburg, Maryland, wasn't doing well. I suggested having a superhero appearance. He wasn't sure. I called Marvel Promotions. They got me in touch with this woman, Nancy Allen, that told me the price, which was outrageous. And I said, well, what if you had a local Spider-Man? She said, who? I said, me. She said, well, we'd have to meet you. We're having an orientation in New York next week. If you can come out, we can take a look. I figured, what the hell? Flew out one day to New York. It's like an hour flight from from, uh, Washington to New York. And uh, go in, meet. Um, they had me try on the suit. They said, well, you're a little short. Now I'm was five foot 10, 165 pounds. The breakdown for Spider-Man was he was five foot 10, 165 pounds. <laughs> Perfect. And, uh, but for, for, as far as they were concerned, Spider-Man should be six feet and above and tall and lanky. And I was built like a gymnast B cut. Uh, you know, I look like a mix between a Ditko and Ramita Spider-Man and I'm flipping all over the office and jumping up on the desk and Ditko style poses and flipping off the desk. And it's like, okay, they take me to orientation. Uh, they're talking about all the questions kids and people would ask when you're making lab appearances and you're supposed to say your name and the character you play. And when it comes up to me, I say my name, well, Scott Lava and I look confused and Nancy goes Spider-Man and I go Spider-Man. So I guess I was hired and long, you know, it's a long story short. I started working for Marvel doing appearances and that led to bigger and better things. Got to be friends with the uh, people in the bullpen, including Stan Lee, John Romita, Danny Fingeroth, Jim Shooter, Mark Grunewald. Um, As far as they were concerned, I was Spider-Man, which is how I ended up on the comic book covers. They thought I had a Remarkable resemblance to Peter Parker, and if anybody can pull off the cover of an unmasked Spider-Man, it would be me. So, so did they kind of summarize the long history there? <laughs> did they photograph you, and you end up drawn on the cover? In which issue are you? No, on? it's an actual photograph, Spider-Man number two sixty-two. It's an actual photograph. Um, Elliot Brown's got a website um, where he actually discusses the entire Elliot Brown. Uh, did uh, did the photo shoot he's on the cover he's actually holding a tape dispenser with a flash on it which is supposed to look like a camera where the camera's behind us um but he he writes all these things about marvel history on his website and that's on there about what we did how we did the cover where we shot it ah. um they had a backup from the the uh, artist just in case it didn't work and thankfully it did jim shooter was behind the concept so, so I, I did guess, a couple of covers. I guess Scott, before you, Nicholas Hammond was Spider Man, and in that TV show in the seventies. And then, do you end up wearing the suit that was used in the TV show, or do you have a suit that's made by Marvel? What What's the difference? There? Well, the suit in the TV show um, was built by the same people doing the Marvel promotions. Uh, Eve Brooks, Jesse Guerrera at Eve Brooks, had designed with. Um, silkscreen and everything else and that suit is the one that hollywood used but the stunt guy changed certain aspects of the costume he put on um i guess leather gloves and boots over the regular gloves for grip on the cable work mm-hmm. and he changed the eyes to more of a mirror style lens so that it's visibility because the mesh in the eyes you you get a bright light you're blind it's just all white um but that was the same exact design of the suit that was um Eve Brooks Spider-Man. I think the TV show he had actually had like bracelets on for like his web shooters or something. 
Yeah, they did put those on the outside, which I always thought was a mistake, so you could see yes. them. And the belt was on the outside with the cartridges and the lights and everything else. So, so uh, you go on to work on like Canon films. I understand there was a, a shot there that you were going to star in a Spider-Man movie before any of the Spider-Man movies had been made. Well, Canon had the rights to Spider-Man. It's a long, long discussion about what, who, when, where. But um, I did a lot of publicity shots. They loved me. They brought me in. The director liked me. There was nothing ever contractually that you are the guy. I was told I was the guy by different sources. Uh, Stan Lee, who became I became really good friends with, was really pushing for me. And, of course, he was pushing for the part of J. Jonah Jameson. Oh, which, which would have been perfect. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it's kind of who, it's, you know, it's who J. Jonah Jameson's based on. Yeah. Um, that being said, um, yeah, I, I had a long run there at Canon Films, hoping, and it kept changing. And it went from Toby Hooper very quickly to um, Joe Zito. And Joe and I used to hang out and talk. And I would help him out with certain things and give him comic books. He wanted to know more about Doc Ock. So I gave him the... Uh, the actual Spider-Man comics with him that kind of gave the best history of who Doc Ock was, which was the early issues and would hang out and so forth. But sadly the movie never got made. Was Marvel as particular back then about who was wearing a Spider-Man? I, I, 20 years ago, I was a Spider-Man here in Arkansas and I did all kinds of fundraisers for special Olympics and all this kind of stuff. But Apparently, you know, I, I was told that, you know, they really don't like people wearing their suits and doing that kind of a thing. Was it more open 30 years ago than it is now? Not or? really. That If you were making a lot of money off of it or something or taking work away from them or they heard about it, you would have gotten a cease and desist back then. Really? Because Spider-Man. I mean, all the stuff I see on Instagram and people birthday parties where people do Spider-Man and now everybody makes the coolest Spider-Man suits you've ever seen. The original oh, yeah. one I wore was like one of a kind. There was nothing like it, and that was Spider-Man. Um, but uh, I, I'm pretty sure Disney has cease and desist on certain things because I see them all over the place. Um, have you went on to but, be a fan of the Tommy McGuire's and Tom Holland and all I, of that? Love the Tom Holland because the fun and the sarcasm and and – the overall youthfulness and and just boy wonder like oh my god this is incredible that peter <laughs> originally had yes. is there toby was a little too um straight laced i mean i thought they were fun films i thought they were good um but it, it, for me it was missing some of that magic touch which is what makes spider-man spider-man yeah, yeah I, um, I totally so get at it at this point i think to i think tom's kind of got it nailed down I, you know, I Kevin, agree. Kevin, yeah. So Kevin you, Feige, I mean, go ahead. I was going to ask you about Canon Films, who almost made this Spider-Man thing. They That had to have been like working for the Wild West movie makers back then. I mean, they all of these crazy, awesome 80s films came out of Canon. Does anything like that even exist anymore? No, um, it really doesn't. The direct-to-video, there are independent companies. But most of the studios from places like PM Entertainment and so forth for doing direct-to-video and doing the smaller budget films, you know, they looked at them and said, hey, we can do that. 
it's not what it used to be in any way, shape, or form. Um, Canon way overstepped that when they got into bigger budget movies and they flopped, that's when Canon started going down. They should have really stuck with this is the type of budget we work with, or if they were going to do it, do it right. I mean, Superman four, you look at those special effects. Oh, it's oh not my good. God, that's atrocious. Oh, yeah, it sucks. It's bad. <laughs> it's yeah, bad. And, and that's cutting corners. And that's, if you're going to do that, you go all in, you put the money behind what it takes, the visual effects and everything else. You do not cut corners. So I'm not sure because the stuff that was in the script with Spider-Man and Doc Ock, um, if they had cut corners on that, it would have looked like a, a cheap cartoon. Yeah, it would not have worked. We got to talk about Star Trek because you have done a lot of these. And it was funny, you were saying earlier that you weren't really a huge fan of it growing up. And then you kind of come into it later when it becomes a career. It's funny because, as I said, my, my, my eldest uh, sibling was just a huge Star Trek fan and I wasn't. And, you know, as we went on and growing up and Star Trek was always there. And then uh, I remember being in a convention. I used to go to comic conventions and Gene Roddenberry was there and they were introducing they were going to be doing the next Star Trek, the movie. And I thought, this is cool and started getting into it. And as I became a stuntman and moved to Los Angeles, I started meeting up with people and um, ended up working on Star Trek. I worked on Star Trek Six, which was the last official film with the original cast. So yeah. I worked with the original cast and met them all. Um, went on to uh, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine. Deep Space Nine, I was brought into audition for a Klingon. And here's a guy that's, uh, you know, a little under five foot 11. And um, I go in and I'm seeing these huge six foot three, six foot three people. And I'm thinking, that's a Klingon. I'm not a Klingon. <laughs> but I had a back acting background. I went in and I did. And on the way home, I get a call and it's the stunt coordinator, Dennis Madalone, who's the nicest guy you could ever meet, said, you want to work on uh, Deep Space Nine next week? I said, seriously, yeah, you got the part. Like, son of a God. Um, Scott, what did you do? Put, did you fake some Klingon, Vokrok, some kind of voice or something? I, I, I came in and just played as strong a Klingon as I could, which was the character Ortican. And, um, you know, in, in the, uh, whatever the Empire, I forget what it is, uh, the name of the, the actual episode. Um, but it was fun. And, you know, the makeup, oh, my God, I made a fortune on that show because you'd have to you'd have forced calls where you'd have to be in the next morning. Um, and then you're getting double, triple pay to be in and because the makeup took forever to do. I bet. Um, but everything. I worked on every Star Trek show on the original platform where I worked on Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Next Generation, and Discover. Um, I haven't worked on any of the new ones, uh, any of the new films, but I did work as far as I'm concerned with the original cast, which was everyone. Um, I was on, uh, the Excelsior with uh, George Takei, where he was his first, mm -hmm. uh, where he was the, f the first time he was a captain of his own ship. That was a fun, fun run. I almost embarrassed myself there, but that was a fun run. What are what are your memories of being around Shatner or or Leonard Nimoy? I mean, 
that's the I'm in awe. I mean, these are these are people that you look at in a history, and I've always respected Nimoy as an actor, and I've always <sighs> liked Shatner. I, I worked with Shatner on another film down the road, and I've always liked Shatner. And quite frankly, I like pretty much everyone that was associated with Star Trek. I got to meet Gene Roddenberry, Richard Arnold, who was like Gene's right hand man, was a friend of mine, and I mean, I get uh, I used to talk with Gene, and Gene would come by the set and. You know, those were the the days when you don't look at it like, oh, my God, this is Gene Roddenberry. It's just like, oh, this is a guy that invented Star Trek. You go, oh, cool. How are you? <laughs> when so, people... Had I been more of a fanboy, I might have gone, oh, my uh, God, it's Gene Roddenberry. <laughs> yeah, I'd have flipped out. Would people be surprised at the detail in, in the set of, say, the bridge of the Enterprise? Is it is it built I for mean, camera it looks, it... or is it really good when you're standing there on it? It's not good when you go behind it because that's when all the wood slats are. But when you're there on the set, you're on the starship. It's really cool. I mean, it's really, really cool. You walk in and, and the doors, I mean, the doors are sliding. You see people behind them pulling them. And <laughs> I mean, and it's, it's, it's really cool. I mean, it's a starship. Un unbelievable. You know, the, the whole, yeah. The whole soundstage is pretty much Star Trek. Was the next generation crew as friendly and accommodating as like the original crew? Was there some you preferred or some? I thought you... so. I mean, I, I knew Jonathan Frakes from way back. Um, I had met Jonathan when he was up and coming and he used to work for Marvel playing Captain America. And he was always nice and easygoing and nothing seemed to change there when I, when we talked. So when you um, were Spider-Man, he was Captain America? Uh, he was just moving on from there and doing other things and acting. I think he was like, I don't remember what he had done when we did an appearance at the white house as Marvel characters. Um, Jonathan was brought in because they thought he was the perfect Spider-Man, uh, Captain America. And they were able to talk him into coming to the white house. And we would talk a lot then. Um, I was always a little dumbfounded. I mean, I like Jonathan, but Jonathan was more of a thin guy, and I always thought Captain America's buff. For sure. And I got to be honest, there was not a single one of our heroes outside of me. Don't I know I sound like I'm bragging, but that was built like a superhero. That most of them were tall and thin, or and you're like, well, like they should you know, be. Unexpected. Yeah, huge muscular, and we yeah. didn't have these huge muscular, which I thought is what we should. Yeah, you need yeah. a He-Man type guy. I mean, come on. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I even thought that about the Chris Evans guy. I always thought it should have been a guy a little bit older and a little bit gruffer that looked like a World War II veteran, not a, you know. A, a... I, I would go with him, though. I think he did well. I liked I liked what he did. Yeah, I liked it, but I always I'm, thought. I'm glad he wasn't too muscle bound. So, yeah. 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 It's, it's all good. All that Marvel stuff is good. You worked on a reboot show and I love this show and I hate that it ended the way it did. The Sarah Connor Chronicles. Yes. I love the Sarah Connor. Chronicles. The last very... episode is one of the best episodes of anything. And then you never know what happens next. <laughs> My understanding is it was too expensive to make for TV. Really? Considering what it was getting in the ratings, it was too expensive um, to to proceed with. Star Trek had a following, and they were spending enough on you know per week on Star Trek that by the time the series for that that season was shot, you know, it was a multi 
million dollar what you would have put into a feature um but sarah connor's it just wasn't pulling in the ratings which didn't which is why they were going well we're not making enough here to keep going what a great so. show well written show oh, yeah. tied back yeah. into the film are there particular action sequences you worked on i mean there's a lot of good ones um her jumping out of the window to get away summer glow that was yep. one of my airbags and uh they cgi the car into that one too um they didn't let her do it right oh god no we had a stunt double a couple of scenes um i mean there were a couple i can't remember them all i set up uh, ratchets and air rams and i brought out some airbags and um you know it, don't remember it well. It was just a fun show to work on. <laughs> you worked on the reboot of uh, RoboCop, and I really enjoyed that movie. It kind of got panned by some critics. I thought it was a lot of fun. Was that a great one to work on? Um, it was. It was fun. Um, are you talking the movie or the TV show? The, the movie. You worked on both, I guess. I was thinking the the movie yeah, I worked twenty fourteen or TV so. Series. The movie, um, I was one of the stunt robots, androids, that, uh, that was all black and sort of like didn't, it was whatever that was. Um, and uh, See, I didn't I know they were standing. humans. I thought they were CGI. We were, we were CGI, but we're standing there, and we've got our, our green suits on with all the little motion capture dots all over us. Really? And so with all the movement and stuff, we're stunt guys going through and taking the shots and falling down. And then the CGI robot was put in after the fact. It has some very good effects in the film, you know. Oh, yeah. No, it, it was a fun film. It, it's, I don't know. I don't think you can really do better than the original, to be honest with you. I thought the original was just. There's no beating the 87 Paul Verhoeven version. No, the, no you can't. That's no. a magic. Can't, you can't recapture. <laughs> no. Hey, on your uh, IMDb, you're listed as working on David Letterman, and I'm fascinating how a stuntman ends up working on David Letterman. I was a huge fan of his. I, I doubled shows. David on a gymnastics thing at one point that he had to do something, and he walks off stage, and I'm the guy that handsprings in off the other side of the stage. That was a long time ago. <laughs> um, they did it more than once. They, they they did it again. I don't remember the other guy. I didn't get to do it the second time or. Maybe I did the second, the other guy did the first, but um, they kind of redid this stunt to where he's doing acrobatics. I think I was walking on my hands, rolled handspring, handspring, and then you go off stage where uh, they were joking around about some of the J uh, Dave's ability. Sure, sure. Did you meet so Letterman? David Letterman one day. Did you? Yeah, yeah, it was very nice. That's cool. That's very, very cool. Hey, I sure appreciate you. Uh, come on, Guatney Unplugged. Can you tell us when this book you're talking about may be out and where people would find it? I don't have a precise date. It's basically my life growing up, wanting to get into movies, working with Marvel, working with meeting all the big bullpen people at Marvel, working with Clint Eastwood, Steven Spielberg, Francis Ford Coppola, to name a few. Love to have you back on and promote that. Thank you so much. Oh, absolutely. Thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure. Hey, thank you. You guys go have a great Saturday. We'll see you next week here on 1037 The Buzz. Spider-Man.